This is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily. I'm Charles Feldman. I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. School kids in California need about seven different vaccines before they're allowed in classrooms. Polio, chickenpox, measles, mumps, rubella, go down the list. Uh, One lawmaker would like to add COVID-19 to the list, so we'll take a closer look at making vaccinations permanent for kids in classrooms. Those government-provided free at-home rapid COVID testing kits are allegedly in the mail to the millions of people who ordered them online last week, plus insurance companies are now required to cover the costs of rapid tests. Will all of these steps help ease the COVID testing shortage? And new research could provide answers on the origins, the persistence of a long COVID symptoms, the brain fog that um, some COVID uh, survivors still have months after the infection. We start, though, with two controversial pandemic-induced proposals in California. One, would allow kids as young as 12 to get a COVID vaccine without parents' consent. The other would add the COVID vaccine to the list of required vaccines for K-12 through students. With us is Democratic State Senator Scott Weiner from San Francisco. He's the author of the bill that would let kids as young as 12 get vaccinated without parent consent. But he also supports the bill making the COVID vaccine a requirement for school kids. So, Senator Weiner, critics of your legislation. They're saying this is yet another example of government trying to take parents out of the equation when it comes to their own kids. Um, yeah, I don't think that's uh, uh, true. Parents still have to consent for the vast majority of health care for their kids. Um, you know, the, the, let's be clear. We want parents to be involved in their kids' health care uh, decision. And with or without this bill, even if we had this bill, large majority of teenagers are going to talk to their parents about getting a vaccine. But unfortunately, not all teens are in a position where they can communicate with their parents. Uh, And there are parents who are just adamantly opposed to the vaccine, even though that means that a teenager may not be able to play sports anymore or be in the band, may not be able to go to their friend's house, uh, may not be able to keep their job because of the vaccine requirement. And so these kids, these teenagers, Uh, If they can't talk to their parents about it, uh, they should be able to protect their own health and keep their classrooms safer by getting a vaccine. And to be clear, we already allow today 12-year-olds and up to get the HPV vaccine or the Hep B vaccine or birth control or even an abortion without talking to their parents. This is building on that existing structure. Well, and and therein, I guess, lies the problem for some parents. Uh, And and they would probably argue back to you that even the ones that you've just articulated are things that are questionable and that a 12-year-old doesn't have the capability of deciding for him or herself uh, that something is medically necessary. Well, uh, that's a balance that uh, California has struck for quite some time. And uh, just to be clear, that's why we went with 12 years old in this bill. Someone could argue, should it be 13? Should it be 14? And that's a conversation we can have. Uh, But right now, California does have defined 12 years as uh, an age at which uh, kids can start making more decisions for themselves. But fundamentally, whether one thinks it should be 12 or 13 or 14, that that's the debate we can have. But the question is, should a kid who wants to protect him or herself uh, from a potentially deadly virus um, wants to be able to play sports and go over their friends' homes 
and, and do all the things that being vaccinated allows you to do, should they be basically shut down because their parents don't want them to get the vaccine? And we have a network of teenagers, activists, they're amazing, across the state who have horror stories, not just for themselves, but for their friends, and who are really working hard to try to expand access to vaccines for teenagers. All right, let's talk about the other bill from um, Dr. Pan that, that you are in support of. This is about um, adding it to the list uh, for the student vaccines. And, you know, there is the vaccine requirement that's out there, but this is going to do what? It's going to close off the ability for anybody to have the personal belief exemption when it comes to it, right? right. So, yeah, so th- this uh, legislation that Dr. Pan is leading on um, will align the COVID va- for, for school children, will align COVID vaccine requirements to be the same as measles and other vaccine requirements. So about uh, six years ago, I believe, California eliminated the personal belief exemption uh, for measles and other basic uh, school-required vaccines. It's a massive loophole because it basically means there's a requirement, but anyone can opt out, and that makes it a fake requirement. And we were seeing increasing numbers of families opt their kids out of getting measles and, and other vaccines. And so guess what? Measles, which was a virus that we had not eradicated, but all but eradicated in this country, started surging back. And that is a very serious illness. And so we removed the personal belief exemption for measles and other vaccines, but it didn't apply to future vaccines that were placed onto um, the list of required vaccinations. So that's why when the governor uh, announced that COVID vaccine was going to go onto that list, the personal belief exemption loophole came roaring back. And so we need to remove that and be clear that when we say that certain vaccines are needed to keep schools safe and to keep teachers and kids safe, we mean it. The uh, prospects for both bills? Um, Well, the legislature has a strong record of passing pro-vaccine pieces of legislation, uh, but these bills are always hard fought because the um, anti-vaccine uh, the anti-vaxxers are very, very loud. They do not represent a majority, not by any stretch. They are a loud minority, but they are loud and they're organized and they're intense and they make threats and they come and they assault, they've assaulted at least one of my colleagues. And, uh, and so that makes it very contentious. Uh, so I, I think both bills have a path to be passed, but it's not guaranteed. And we're going to have to make the case that this is so important in terms of public health in California. Are you guys ready for more of that backlash, given the politics, given the the thoughts about this particular vaccine? Uh, Well, I mean, the the tragedy, and it it is such a tragedy, is that vaccines, which didn't used to be a partisan issue, right? When we we had tackled polio um, or any of the other horrible diseases that we developed these amazing vaccines for, um, it was never a partisan issue. It was bipartisan. And unfortunately, vaccines have now become a partisan issue, and that is a tragedy because it is harmful to public health, and people die as a result uh, of, of the anti-vaccine movement. Uh, and so, you know, it'll be, yes, it'll be intense. I've already been yelled at about this bill. <laughs> um, not so much in San Francisco. San Francisco is intensely pro-vaccine, as is L.A., um, but, uh, uh, you know, there, there, of course, will be um, contentiousness around these bills. Democratic State Senator Scott Weiner from San Francisco. Senator, thanks.
Free at-home COVID tests are now available online through the federal government. You can also pick them up at your local pharmacy, (laughs) yeah, and get reimbursed through your insurance company. Right. That is if you can find them. The tests are still on the difficult side to come by. Lindsay Dawson is a health systems and insurance coverage expert at Kaiser Family Foundation. Lindsay, you've been uh, tracking at-home testing, which may be an easy job because, well, (laughs) there's nothing to track. Well, you're right. It does seem that some people are continuing to have real difficulty finding these tests in stores. Um, If you're walking into your local pharmacy, it's likely hit or miss whether you're going to find the test you're looking for. However, the good news here is that based on online searches I've been doing, it does seem like over these last few days, there's better availability from online retailers. Okay, so where are you looking so if people need them, they can go and look for some? So today I saw pretty good availability at both Walmart and Amazon. Um, And the timetable for test delivery looks like it's been improving too. Last week, it looked like it would be over a week or even two weeks to get a test. And now it looks like you can get within that week window. Okay, but uh, I think, Mike, you were pointing out before we went on the air that that you can get them quicker, apparently, through Amazon than the government one. Yeah. Where you go online and, and they send it out allegedly within about like 12 days. And then the post office says it may take another six days to turn it around. Yeah. So the week window is right for the for the, the orange box test is the one yeah. I term it. That's the Amazon one. Uh, that looks like it can be here at the earliest, like next Monday. But then you're right. If you're doing the government one, we're just still all waiting. We ordered them when when the window opened, and then right. I guess we're going to see when those those finally show up. Yeah, I ordered them as well. Um, I haven't seen mine. I did hear the White House press secretary say that some people have started to receive their tests, um, and we should hear this week how many people have actually requested them from that website. But is the problem, uh, Lindsay, that, uh, you know, in other countries, and we've had people on from other countries who tell us how easy it is to get at-home tests and for free uh, or very low cost uh, in many Western European countries, is it because that those countries have authorized many, many more kinds of at-home tests and the FDA in this country has been really difficult to approve these tests so we don't have that many different brands available? Yeah, there are really two main reasons why we've seen better availability and cheaper tests or free tests in other countries. One is exactly what you point to, that there are more manufacturers and so there's wider availability um, and competition can drive down prices. And then the second piece is that in the US, we really invested upfront in vaccination. So after some initial hiccups, uh, most people could probably find a vaccination that was fairly convenient to them and free of charge. And we didn't do that with tests. Now we're playing a bit of catch up and investing in testing and infrastructure and actually test manufacturers in different ways. They've been talking about all these, you know, extra orders that they made and we'll get into the stores. When do we think that those could be here? Because let's say we've got another month of uh, Omicron as the downward slope goes. Are we going to be in wash in tests in May when we might not need the tests? Well, we'll have to see. Um, One thing we've learned from this pandemic is that it's a little hard to predict what we'll need um, a month or two out. Um, Certainly, we've been seeing new manufacturers get through the EUA process, which could bring more tests to market, um, regardless of what happens with the the tests um, purchased from the existing manufacturers.
But you know what? What Mike just said, uh, it occurred to me because it brought back a, a, a memory. That that's exactly what happened in this country. You know, he was talking about: uh, Are we finally going to get these at-home tests when we don't really need them? In fact, that did happen, did it not? Uh, there were tests that were starting to be developed and started to show up at pharmacies, and then before the Delta uh, wave came along, uh, people and the vaccines came out. People stopped getting tests, and some of the companies stopped making them. Yeah, um, that's exactly what happened. And, you know, you could see from the financial filings of these companies that they just weren't sure how to gauge um, the demand that these tests were going to have. And they have a fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders. um, And so they didn't want to have a lot of products sitting on store shelves. And in part, these upfront federal investments and advanced purchasing helps to solve this sort of challenging position that the test manufacturers were, were in and assures that if there is continued demand for tests, um, that they're going to be there and that the manufacturers are able to produce them. Lindsay Dawson, Health Systems and Insurance Coverage Experts, Kaiser Family Foundation. Short break and then getting closer to finding the causes, potential cures for the debilitating long COVID symptom known as brain fog. Some people who have recovered from COVID still don't feel like themselves, and for many of them, it starts in their heads. They haven't been able to think or speak as clearly or quickly as they used to. They've complained about what is being called brain fog. Now, there's a small study out of UC San Francisco offering some clues as to what might cause it, and the mystery is in the cerebrospinal fluid. With us is study author Dr. Joanna Helmuth at UC San Francisco's Memory and Aging Center. Doctor, can you first give us a, a kind of baseline description of COVID-fueled brain fog? Is it something mild like a general, you know, blah kind of feeling, or are people having real problems with concentration and memory? You know, what people notice is that their brain is not working like it used to. You know, we really categorize these as executive functioning symptoms, which it means it's really involving the organizing and planning parts of the brain. So what people often tell me is, I have difficulty remembering recent things. But when I ask them if they're given enough time or clues or cues, those memories tend to come back to them. They also have difficulty coming up with names or words, difficulty keeping information in their head, you know, as they're walking from one room to the other. Um, And things like processing speed, the brain just isn't quite working as fast. And so, you know, what we find is that these are very consistent symptoms that we're seeing after COVID. And people are saying, you know, I used to never have these kind of issues before. I know these are a new problem in my life that are really impacting my ability to work even or, you know, to function in daily life. So is this because the virus itself uh, migrates, it finds its way into the uh, brain and is, is there? Is it because of inflammation in the body that's affecting perhaps the blood flow to the brain? Is it a combination of that? Is it something totally different? No, I think that's that's a great question, and that's what we're trying to answer in our study. You know, I think that um, there are thoughts that maybe the virus directly could do some damage. Um, the data now are pretty mixed about whether the virus regularly gets in the brain. There are some studies that show that even people who are very, very ill in the intensive care unit with COVID who have really bad neurologic issues in their brain, that only, you know, a fraction, you know, of those individuals actually can we find virus in the brain, maybe six or 7% of those people. So I think that we don't know that the virus regularly gets into the brain. But what we do know is that people who get COVID on average tend to have an activated immune system, that their immune system is, you know, acting in a lot of ways, even after the virus has left the body. 
And one of the things we're exploring is, is that um, environment in the brain as well? Do we see inflammation in the brain as well? Or are we seeing antibodies that are directed to the brain? And so that's something that we're looking at now as a follow-up of the study that we published. Okay, so what did you find in the spinal fluid samples that gives you clues to any of those you know, avenues that we can go down? Certainly. So, you know, we were just asking the basic question. If we do a spinal tap on people who got COVID, that was confirmed COVID, um, who are reporting new cognitive issues, how does that compare to the spinal fluid of people who got COVID who said, you know what, my thinking of memory is great. I'm having no cognitive problems. And I'll step back and say, like your doctor can do basic blood work if you're, if you're ill, we can also do kind of basic tests on cerebrospinal fluid. And so they don't tell us exactly what's going on, but they give us some general indicators of further studies that we need to do. Do people, so, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was gonna ask, is there any noticeable difference yeah. between people who have been fully vaccinated, and I'm going to use three doses uh, of the messenger messenger RNA vaccines uh, for the definition of fully. Uh, is there a difference between those who are fully vaccinated and those who have not been vaccinated at all when it comes to brain fog? Yeah. Well, you know, this was a small study. It included both vaccinated and unvaccinated people. And I'll tell you that these were all people that got COVID prior to vaccinations being available. So they got COVID, developed the cognitive issues, and then the vaccinations were only offered after um, words because they, they just weren't available publicly yet. But what we found was that 77% of the people with COVID who had cognitive changes had abnormalities in their cerebrospinal fluid, whereas 0% of the people who had COVID with no cognitive changes had abnormalities. And again, these are small numbers. We had 13 in the group with cognitive changes and uh, only four people in the group who had COVID without cognitive changes. So very small numbers, but it's 77% is a striking number. And we didn't notice differences between the people who were and were not vaccinated. Interestingly, if it's, you know, systemic inflammation, does that make sense to you, theoretically? Yeah, you know, it's, you know, the, the abnormalities that we found kind of point generally in the direction of the immune system. They suggest either inflammation or abnormal immune responses in the body and the brain or just within the brain itself. Um, and we certainly know that other viruses that can cause cognitive disorders can be associated with similar changes. So right now what we're doing is we're taking those samples and we've done further analysis to really understand exactly what these abnormalities are so we can target that more, maybe even find therapies that already are approved by the Food and Drug Administration that might be helpful. You know, I was gonna ask because COVID of course hasn't been around that long, but it's been around maybe long enough that are you getting a picture about prognosis? You know, is this something that once somebody has brain fog caused by COVID, are they gonna have it for the rest of their lives? Well, you know, I'm, I'm a cognitive neurologist, so I only see patients in my clinic who have thinking and memory changes or a very kind of very subspecialized field. And so I've been seeing people for almost two years now with cognitive changes after COVID. Uh, and I can share my anecdotal observations. So this is not driven by quantitative data, but just what I've noticed. Some people improve with time spontaneously over months. Some people stay the same but I've not seen anybody get worse over the past two years. Um, uh, you could ask questions, who are the people that are getting better? Um, you know, my general observations that these tend to be younger people, because again, I'm seeing teenagers with these cognitive changes, 20, 30, 40 year olds. 
they are, you know, my general observations is that these people are tending to be more likely to improve spontaneously compared to the older individuals. But I've seen some older individuals um, improve as well. So I think that we have a lot more to learn um, by studying these problems over time. Do you treat them with anything? We have no known treatments now that uh, will do anything. There's some anecdotal, uh, you know, medications that people have been trying, um, things like fluvoxamine. I've heard a number of reports from my patients and otherwise that people are actually getting worse symptoms with trying these. So there's things that we can throw at this problem, but we have no idea if they work. Uh, I've heard equal reports of people getting worse. And stepping back, you know, I studied cognitive changes that were associated with a different virus, HIV, prior to this pandemic. And so we had decades of research in that field and none of the medications that we've just tried have worked in that disorder either. And so I think that's something that we need to do is do much more in-depth studies. We need to really target exactly what is contributing to this and not just kind of generally the immune system as a whole. But I'm hopeful um, that we'll make much more traction in this um, than we have in other viruses that cause cognitive disorders. Dr. Joanna Helmuth, UC San Francisco's Memory and Aging Center. Doctor, thanks. We end today's coronavirus daily with a story about COVID and the at-home medical revolution it could be causing. We've talked about wide acceptance of telemedicine by both doctors and patients and how routine checkups done over a Zoom call became a much more normal occurrence over the last two years. But many scientists also see big benefits in the widespread use of at-home COVID testing kits, something that could make lots of different types of medical testing a lot easier. If antigen-based tests are widely understood and trusted by both doctors and patients, there's a whole host of other medical conditions for which rapid testing could be applied. Antigen tests could be used by patients at home for early possible detection of some types of cancers or for a condition like chronic kidney disease. And in the decades ahead, when we're all testing ourselves for serious possible medical conditions at home, we can point back to this pandemic when the rules change. You can find this Odyssey original and others on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Stitcher.